Welcome today to church. So glad you're here. Can you touch the person next to you and tell them, I'm glad you're sitting by me today. Come on, just tell them. Come on, turn to the other person and tell them, you're going to be blessed just because you're sitting by me today. I'm telling you, just something God's going to do in your life. I want to welcome those of you here that are here for the very first time and those watching online for the first time. Church, let's let them know that we're glad they're hanging out with us. All those people, welcome them today. Glad that you're here. Welcome home, Vibrant Church. Glad you're in the house. We're gonna have a great time together this morning, I promise you. Hey, before we get into the word, though, let me just uh, give you a couple things. First of all, this Wednesday night, we're back on Facebook Live. We're gonna pick up our series in the book of James called How Faith Works. Don't miss it. Log on 7 p.m. this Wednesday night. Share it to your page. Invite your friends. We're really leaning into Scripture verse by verse, chapter by chapter. The book of James is one of the most powerful books in the New Testament about how we are to live. And I've told you before, let me just say it again. These, these two series that we're doing, Sunday morning and Wednesday night in James. So Sunday morning in Revelation, we're talking about God's prophetic future for the earth and, and what that means. But then on Wednesday nights, we're, 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 that's a, a cousin series is this book in James that I'm teaching through because basically that means based on all the stuff that we're learning on Sunday about where, where all this is going, how then should we live today? And that's what the book of James is all about. So I want you to log on 7 p.m. back on Facebook Live. Join us if you're watching online. Join us. It's going to be an amazing time together in the Word of God. Hey, and we kicked off 21 days of prayer this past Monday. And uh, so many, we've been so impressed uh, and just really humbled by the, the, the amount of involvement online. So many people have been logging on at 6 a.m., and joining us for prayer. It's been a powerful week. I just wanna encourage you, if you've not jumped in yet, we're going into our second of three weeks. So tomorrow morning at 6 a.m., me and, and our staff, we're gonna be here on this stage looking into that camera, and we're gonna join and lead you in, in prayer for that 6 to 7 a.m. hour. And if you've not done it before, jump on. It's not what you think. It's a, it's a great format. There's some scheduled things in there. We lead you through this whole process. It's a powerful time. I really believe God moves when his people pray. Thank you for that enthusiastic agreement from all of God's people. Come on, how many believe God moves when his people pray, right? And so we're gonna lean in together. That's what this season of 21 Days of Prayer is all about. I don't know about you, but I believe God's people ought to be praying now more than ever. We ought to be praying, not only seeking God for our own life, but we ought to be praying and seeking God for what's going on in our culture, in our communities, what's happening in this world, because I believe God moves. Things change when his people pray. You may think, well, I'm just trying to learn about prayer. I've never really done that. Don't worry. We're going to help you on these mornings learn how to strengthen your prayer life and engage the Lord in prayer and have a powerful time in his presence. So join me, join our staff tomorrow morning, Monday through Saturday. Monday through Friday is 6 to 7 a.m. Saturday is 9 to 10 a.m. on Facebook Live. Join us, it is going to be awesome. I wanna welcome you to our series on Revelation that we've been in for the past several weeks. Somebody shout Revelation. Are you getting anything out of this so far, y'all? Because I'm having a blast. I mean, I'm having a blast teaching through this. This is just some exciting, fun stuff to dig into. And uh, if you're just joining us for the first time, maybe here in the house or online, uh, let me just tell you, you might wonder where this is coming from. Why are we doing a series on the book of Revelation? You know, it's kind of the... Some people think it's the taboo book of scripture. Don't go near that because it's just weird and nobody really understands. But yet God's word says that we are blessed if we read the words of that book. 
And so there's a blessing attached to it. But really the reason we're in this, for those of you who don't know, this is the number one question that I've been asked by people during all of these months of coronavirus and, and, and racial unrest and all the things that are going on in the economy. People have been emailing, people have been calling, people have I run into in, in, in town. It's the number one question I've been asked. Pastor, are we in the last days? Are we entering the, the beginning of the end? And I've told you before, we were in the last days the minute Jesus ascended to heaven because the rapture is imminent. We have no precursors. There's, there's no prophetic benchmarks that have to be met for the rapture of the church. But we understand the second coming of Jesus, which is to be at the end of the tribulation, there's prophetic benchmarks that must be met before that event happens. And right now, the world as we see it is careening toward the end of all things. Can I get an amen in the house today? It really is. When you look at everything going on, we are in the last of the 11th hour before the midnight hour strikes and the rapture. So I really believe it is imminent. I really believe that we're going to start seeing some things unfold in our world. Just this past week, how many of you saw on the news the, 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 the bomb that went off in Beirut? And we're seeing all of these things that are happening. The world is going right now through what Jesus prophesied, the beginning of birth pains. This is the beginning of sorrows that we're talking about. And, and so I'm going to give you the bad news first, and I'm going to give you the good news. The bad news is it ain't going to get no better. Okay, the good news is, in the end, we win. Hey, I'll give you another piece of good news. Other piece of good news is that the Bible's very clear that the days that we're marching into right now, these are going to be the greatest days of the church in the history of the world. We've not seen revival like we're about to see revival in this earth. I'm telling you, it's gonna be phenomenal. And I really believe that God wants to prepare us for it. That's why we've been in this series. And so today, are you ready to get in God's word? Get your note sheet out. If you're online, the host is gonna drop a link for the note sheet for you to follow along, hang out with us. Today, we come to Revelation chapter 10. Uh, just about smack almost in the middle of the book. So if you're wondering, yes, we are only about halfway through this series. We got a, a lot more to cover. Is that all right? Okay, so we come to Revelation 10 today. And these last few weeks together, we've been looking specifically at the great tribulation period that really brings about the end of the earth. And the apostle John is, is wanting to let us know, he's wanting to give us some information about what we should expect during this time if we happen to be here. I don't know about you, but I don't plan on being here for all this, okay? I plan on being snatched up out of here in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb, kicking back with the saints. Come on, somebody. We're going to be partaying, okay? That's what I plan on doing. But anyway, we now move into this passage of Scripture that serves, listen, it serves, this serves as an intermission. Somebody say intermission. This chapter in chapter 10 and 11, it serves kind of like an intermission or an interlude between the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bowls of wrath. If you've ever gone to a play, I've been to several plays in Broadway, and I kind of like that kind of thing, whatever. But if you've been to plays or, or whatever, you kind of know that somewhere in the middle of a Broadway production or a musical, they have what's called a what? An intermission. It's kind of where things pause. It's kind of where the reset happens. It's, it's where you get up and go pee. Hallelujah. And so, can I say that? Did I just say pee? I just said, okay. So, 
It's kind of the intermission, but in the whole deal, they reset everything. You get to breathe, go get some water, use the restroom, whatever. And when you come back, where everything's gonna kick off again. And so this, this chapter serves as kind of an intermission. Up to this point, we've discovered three groups of people that serve as main players when the world is coming to the end of itself. And it's this trio, this, these three groups of people that raise a lot of havoc in the world during this, this period of time. Just wanna give them to you real quick. They're not gonna be a shocker to you, but I'm building something, so work with me. The first group of people that we see in Revelation is the believers. Everybody say believers. It's the believers, and what we're finding out in Revelation is that they experience protection in persecution in the time that we're in in Revelation here, in this time that we're in Revelation chapter 10. Ultimate, they experience ultimate eternal protection, obviously, but they also experience persecution. They are protected, but they're also pure persecuted during this time. And then we have the second group of people, which is the unbelievers. Everybody say unbelievers. They experience the wrath of God but they're also gonna experience judgment because of their unrepentant hearts, the humanity itself. And then the third group, the third of this trio that is wreaking havoc in the earth at the end of time is the player of Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. And they're going to create a tremendous amount of destruction in the world, and then the Bible says they will finally be destroyed. Their eternal fate is gonna be sealed when Jesus returns. These are, these are our three groups of people that we run into all throughout the book of Revelation. They're kind of the three, the trio of players of, of, of the Broadway production that we're watching in front of us. So where are we in the progression of the great tribulation right now in our study? What we're looking at is this, so, so kind of follow me because this is how it's, it's laid out. You have the seven seals that we went through, then there's an intermission. Then you have the seven trumpets, and then there's an intermission. And then there's the seven bowls of wrath, and then there's an intermission preceding the return of Jesus Christ. Now, if you haven't been with us and you're going, well, where is that in the New Testament? You know, what is that, and what, what is that referring to? The seven seals and the seven trumpets and, and the bowls all refer to the judgments and the wrath of God on the earth. And in between each set of these judgments or wrath, God provides an intermission, kind of a reset or some explanation of what's happening or, or, or to reveal protection for believers or to give us some extra insights that we might need to know about the end of time. So we've experienced that throughout of our, our study. We've gone through the seven sealed judgments and then we experienced an intermission a, a little bit. And then last week we looked at the seven trumpet judgments and now we're heading into it today into another intermission period. So an intermission in Revelation, understand, when I say the word intermission, in Revelation, an intermission is a period of time where we understand some things about the end times before the final judgments, which is the seven bowls of wrath, and then that's followed by another intermission. So it's almost like you, you see all this chaos play out, and then God provides an intermission to explain it. 
And John starts explaining some things and, and sees some things in his vision and his revelation. And so it's tying some things together. And then after this last intermission, after the bowls of wrath, we see the return of Jesus Christ. And that forms a pretty good outline for us of the book of Revelation. There's intermissions, there's judgments and intermissions, so forth, and to the return of Jesus Christ. All these seals, all the trumpets, all the bowls, they symbolize God's judgment towards sinful mankind that's been withheld until the very last minute. So why has God withheld his judgment all throughout history? The reason he's done it is to give humanity time to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. He's withheld his judgment and his wrath. We're living in what they call right now the dispensation of grace. So we understand that before Jesus died and resurrected, we were in the dispensation of law. And now because of the resurrection, aren't you glad we're not in the law anymore? Come on, somebody, anybody some grace fans in the house, amen. We're in that dispensation of grace now where God has, is withholding his ultimate judgment and his wrath to give people time. So we see that God has withheld his judgment all throughout history till the very last minute and then finally he just lets it all out on the earth. Like a, like a, like a cork pops in these, in these judgments that are happening in the earth. It's like a cork pops in God's wrath just lets completely loose and unhinged upon the earth. So what we also need to see is that this inter intermission that we're walking into right now, it reveals a lot of characteristics about the tribulation period. And what it reminds us is this, it reminds us that God is in control of his people. He's in control. He's in control and he's faithful. He's faithful to his people, and the faithful of his people are completely secure in him. Aren't you glad that you're secure in Jesus Christ? Amen? Also, there, there are two things, and this is kind of where we're going to land this plane today, and I really want you to open your heart. This is going to be a little different than the other parts of this series, but I'm really excited about it because there's two things that God highly values during the tribulation, and we want to look into this today. Two things that God says will last forever. These are the only two things that will last forever. First of all, there is God's word. And this is what we're going to look at in Revelation 10 today for a little bit. Everybody say God's word. How many believe the word of God will last forever? It is eternal. The second thing that scripture is going to be clear to us today about is not only God's word, but God's witnesses will last forever. That means you and me. How many of you are a witness to some things that Jesus did in your life? We may not know all of it, but we can be like the blind man who encountered Jesus when they asked him about what happened. He said, look, I don't know who he is, and I don't know all about what he's doing, but what I do know is I once was blind, but now I see. I once was in darkness. I'm a witness to some things that Jesus has done in my life. So the word of God and the witnesses of God, which is in Revelation 11, and we're gonna look into some of that too today, these are the two things that last forever, okay? Revelation 10 is talking about God's word, and Revelation 11 is talking about God's witnesses during the tribulation period. We wanna look at those two values that God says will never be destroyed. And the first one we're gonna look at is the preeminence of God's word. This is Revelation 10. So I wanna walk through and give you some explanation of some things in Revelation 10 that you may think, well, I have no idea what that means. 
So let's get a good understanding of that and then let's see how it applies to our lives today. Are you ready? Say yes. Revelation 10 and verse one, here we go. John is writing, he's continuing his account of the revelation of Jesus. He said, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven and he was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head and his face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. Understand it, it goes on to say, we won't read it, but he goes on to say that he was so huge, he had one leg in the ocean and he had one leg on land. And there's this massive angel. So the apostle Paul begins chapter 10 with a mighty angel. He begins it with this strong angel and this mighty angel is a messenger from God. Many people think that this might've been a reference to Jesus Christ himself. I have a problem with that interpretation because Jesus is never described as an angel in the book of Revelation. Also, every time Jesus shows up in the book of Revelation, there is a title attached to his name, like the Lamb, like the Living One, like the King of Kings, come on somebody, and the Lord of Lords. He's got some title, he's got some weight attached to his name. In this particular case, there is no title, and so we know this is simply a messenger angel. It's, it's a strong angel, a mighty angel. If you remember, we already experienced one of these strong angels in Revelation chapter five. And here in Revelation 10, this mighty angel is described to us in certain terms that are very important. All these little things are really important. Notice the way that this angel is described. First of all, John said his face, the face of the angel was like the sun. So write this down. His face represents the holiness of God. The holiness of God. So understand, this angel is going to manifest certain characteristics or attributes of God as he comes to John with this scroll. And we're going to talk about it. And the first characteristic we see is that is the holiness of God. This, his face was like the sun. But then John says that he is clothed in clouds. And I want you to write this down. Clothed in clouds represents the judgment of God. The Bible says that Jesus will come in clouds of glory. Anybody ready for that day? Come on, somebody. And it represents that he's coming, but he's coming in some judgment to those that are unrepentant toward him. So there's the, ju the judgment of God. So we're getting this picture of God through uh, the way this angel looks and the way John sees and describes him. Then he talks about the rainbow that is over his head. And so write this down. The rainbow signifies the faithfulness of God that God is faithful. Where, where else did we see the faithfulness of God typified and, and, and exemplified in the sign of a rainbow? You remember in the Old Testament, come on, Brother Noah. How many of you remember Brother Noah? Remember Brother Noah got off the ark and what happened? God showed him a rainbow to, to show him the promise that I give you my word, I will never destroy the earth again by water. Oh, but he's gonna destroy the earth. <laughs> he just ain't gonna do it by water. But he gave him a promise and said, here's the sign of the promise, gave him a rainbow. What is it telling us? That God is faithful to keep his word. Aren't you glad that we serve a God who's faithful to his word? So we see the faithfulness of God. So the, there we have three important and critical attributes of God. You see, a lot of people today don't understand who God is. 
They don't really have a full understanding of him. A lot of people just, they aren't quite sure, right? And they just kind of view God as God only being a loving God. And anytime they picture him, all they picture is him, like, like the pictures of Jesus, like stroking sheep. And that's all they picture God as. God's just a loving, it's like God's Santa. That's how people picture him. He's just loving and rosy and, and kind and sweet. And he gives out gifts. And he's Christmas and Santa. And he's just a care bear. They kind of view God that way. But you need to know who he is. Is he a God of love? Yes. The Bible says that he not only loves, come on, he is love. Aren't you glad he don't know any other way to be but love? It's who he is. It emanates from his being. But they've forgotten the fact that God is also a holy God. And for God to be holy, he not only needs to be loving and faithful, he also must be just. You can't have a holy God without having just a just God and a loving God. And that's the clearest picture of who God is. And a lot of people today don't understand that. And they have a problem with God like that. So as this angel comes to John, he's describing what God is like. That God is a holy God. He is perfect in every way. But he's also just. And he's also loving. And watch this. God has, in chapter 10, withheld his judgment. Why? Because he loves the world. But he must judge the world, those who refuse to respond to him and those who refuse to repent. He must do that. Why? Because he's a holy God. How many of y'all see what I'm talking about? Come on, y'all better recognize who it is you're dealing with. Oh, he's loving, but he's just. You know, people say, well, God knows my heart. He knows your sin, too. He loves you. Oh, well, God loves me just the way I am. Oh, you're right, he does. But he loves you enough not to leave you like you are. Oh, y'all ain't hearing what I'm saying. So this angel comes describing who God is, and it says in verse two, he had this little scroll in his hand, this angel, which was open. And what is that little scroll? If you remember back in chapter five and verse one, I'll take you to it. If you remember back in chapter five and verse one, it, John said that I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a what? A scroll with writing on both sides and, and sealed with seven seals. This particular scroll in chapter five, listen, this is the title deed to the world right here. This is the story of redemption, that Jesus stood forward as the slain lamb, who was the only one John said was worthy. Somebody say worthy. He was the only one who was worthy to take the title deed and own it and say, I died for this world. I shed my blood for it. I own it. It belongs to me, right? And I believe this is the same scroll that we see appearing in chapter 10. However, I believe that the scroll has been shrunken, and you'll see why. It's been shrunken in size. It talks about little now. It's a little scroll. It's not the big one in chapter 5. It's a little scroll because of what's going to happen in chapter 10 with that scroll. It's been shrunk. 
This is a reference. This right here is a reference to the prophetic word of the living God. That's what this scroll is. It's a representation of the title deed to the world. It's the story of judgment and it's the story of redemption. And this angel had it in his hand. And in verse three, it says this. It says that he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. So you gotta get this picture here. This very large angel that's described as having all these attributes of God, he's got this very small scroll in his hand. And as he begins to speak to John, the Bible says the seven thunders begin to speak as well. And John hears what they say. And it says that John was about to write down what the seven thunders had spoken, but notice what's communicated to John from heaven before he writes it down. It says, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. So there's something about what these seven thunders said that God doesn't want anybody to know about. What is this about? What what does this have to do with anything? Well, that's the unrevealed judgments of God. Come on, how many believe that God is so vast that we can't even fathom him? Come on, how many he is an unfathomable God, right? We don't know the full understanding of all the judgments of God. We don't know how far that goes. We don't know what all he's going to do. So in this passage of scripture, we hear that there's even more judgments that God has for the world, for those who don't respond to him, for those who don't repent and come to faith in Christ, but he will not disclose those to us. He told John, no, I want you to leave them alone. You don't write down what you heard there. That's for me. That's for my own counsel. You don't write that down. I want my people through the generations to know this. I don't want them to know this. Come on, wasn't it it scripture in Deuteronomy that said that the secret things belong to the Lord our God? But the things revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may follow all the words of the law. So there's some things God reveals to us to help us and to lead us and to guide us. He's given his word for generations to come. But there's some things that God says, I hold within my own counsel because I'm God. And the secret things belong to me. So God has chosen not to reveal all of what will happen at the end of days. How many of you know we just need to trust God with that? Right? We need to realize that God is a lot larger than we are. We have a full understanding of him. And there's a part of his judgment that he's decided that he just doesn't want us to know. He doesn't want us to understand. But there's other parts of the judgment that John is supposed to write down, and here we have them in the book of Revelation. And so what happens next? Well, imagine this scene for a minute, okay? You've got this giant angel of God standing in the earth. John sees him. He's standing with one foot in the sea, one foot on land, like the earth is a giant sandbox, kid's sandbox. This is a huge, gigantic angel. And the seven thunders in the background are roaring out judgments against the earth. And the angel then, the Bible says the angel then points upward, it says, and he vows to God who is far greater in size and far greater in value than this angel. And so here's this colossal angel who's pointing upward toward God. 
he has a scroll in one hand and he's pointing toward God and then he hands the scroll to John. This is very important. Imagine John standing there looking at this incredible scene, looking at this huge angel in front of him, wondering with the thundering in the background, hmm, I think I better take the scroll that he's handing to me. I think this is important. I think God has set this thing up and it's very clear that I'm supposed to take the scroll that he's handing me and do exactly what I'm supposed to do with it. And so what happens as we move through the text in verse nine, look what it says. It says, John says, so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, this is so powerful. Y'all better lean in. He said, take it and do what? And eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth, it will be as sweet as honey. Notice the angel commanded John to eat the scroll. Take it, and I want you to eat the scroll. That's a reference, watch this, that's a reference to the word of God being internalized, right? The prophetic word of God that's being handed to John, watch, it's to be eaten. Now, is that the first time we've ever heard this idea of actually eating the word of God? No, you can go to the book of Ezekiel, and I'll show you a couple passages here. In Ezekiel chapter two, we see this. Ezekiel said, then I looked, he saw some visions of the end times too. He said, I looked and I saw a hand stretched out to me and it was a scroll which he unrolled before me and on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe as he continues going down in chapter three and verse one. And the angel said to me, son of man, do what? Eat what is before you. Eat this scroll and then go and speak to the people of Israel, which, by the way, is an important principle for ministry. Before you open your mouth, eat the word. No, I want you to, I want you to stop talking and devour the word first, then open your mouth and talk. So Ezekiel found himself in the same situation. The prophetic word of God was handed to him and he was supposed to watch. He was supposed to internalize it. He was supposed to eat it and then go prophesy to the nations. We also find the same thing in Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah found himself in the very same situation. In Jeremiah chapter 15, Jeremiah said, when your words came, I did what? I ate them. They were my joy. And my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. So notice what's happening here. Another word for internalized, I think, is the word digest. John is being asked, literally, to digest the prophetic word of God. Do you know what digest means? To digest something, it means to take into the mouth and into the stomach so the body can absorb it. That's what it means to digest something. It means to take it into the mouth, into the stomach, so the body can absorb what's, what's being given. Basically, that's what's happening here with John. In order for him to thoroughly understand the content of this prophetic book and be able to apply it to his life, John must consume it. Don't miss this, because if you really want to understand the Word of God, if you really want to have a full understanding of what's in the Word of God, come on, you've got to consume it. 
for yourself. If you don't consume it, you won't understand it and you won't know how to apply it to your life. That's good preaching, pastor. Notice the two characteristics too. This is fascinating. In verse nine, notice the two characteristics. He said, take it in Revelation 10, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach, what? Sour, but in your mouth it will be as what? As sweet as honey. Okay, show of hands in the house, everyone be honest. How many faithful saints of God in the house today or online, how many of you God's people love some chocolate? Come on, can I get a witness in the house of the Lord as to the anointing that's on some chocolate? Amen, somebody. God moves through chocolate. You understand, chocolate has saved a lot of marriages. Chocolate has saved a lot of depression. Chocolate has saved, can I get a witness, somebody? Chocolate, right? Chocolate. Okay. But how many of you know, chocolate is sweet, but it's also bitter. My youngest son one day walked up in the pantry <laughs> and he saw that we had a bag of that cooking chocolate. What is that called? Baking chocolate? I don't know. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Work with me. And you know what? That's the kind of chocolate that's bitter. It don't, it don't have any sweet in it. He tore the bag open. It was just chomping away and almost threw his guts up because it was so bitter. So chocolate can be bitter, but it can also be sweet, right? How does that work? A far greater question is the word of God. How can the word of God be both sweet and also be bitter? Watch. Because this portion of scripture tells us that the word of God, as it is internalized into our life, is first of all, sweet. That means that it's satisfying to the soul. I'm telling you, there's just something about the word of God that's very, very satisfying. How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? But second, the word of God unveils the judgment of God. And it's the, the unveiling of God's judgment that makes it bitter. So just like chocolate can be both bitter and sweet, the word of God is both sweet and bitter. It has both a sweetness to it and it has a bitterness to it. So how do we apply this to our life? The Bible says John took it and he ate it and he found it to be both bitter and sweet. What's the application for us? I believe there's three things we learn from this. Not only the fact that that. that that in John's time, as he took it in, as he internalized it, he was satisfied with the prophetic word of God, but he also, also tasted of the judgment that was to come. So notice the things that we learn for our own lives right here. Write this down. First of all, we know that God's word is sweet, that it satisfies the soul. Everybody say sweet. Man, God's word is so sweet. I mean, it, it's just satisfying. It's just, man, it's amazing. In fact, Psalm chapter 19 and verse 10, it says the decrees of the Lord or the word of the Lord, they are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. The word of God is described like a honeycomb. It is sweet. But, but here's an important question that I have for you this morning. Has the word of God been satisfying for you? Even this week. Take a look at one week of your life. Has the word of God been sweet like a honeycomb for you this week? Is it really satisfying you deep within your soul? Or have you found yourself in a place where you're trying to find satisfaction in other things? 
Are you trying to find that deep desire in other things? Are you trying other things to satisfy your life? I believe we are constantly evaluating our life whether the word of God is the most satisfying thing in our life versus other things in our life. Things like that relationship maybe. Things like maybe some entertainment things that you might enjoy that you shouldn't be enjoying. Maybe, maybe it's some of the new purchases that we try to medicate in, in therapy ourselves with to satisfy our soul, retail therapy and all that mess. Maybe it's stuff that we busy ourselves with for, for young people and even, well, for people, video games. What, man, we're in a generation right now whose brains are being fried on video games. That just felt so good. Thank you, Jesus. I'm telling you right now, take them out the house. They're not a sin until it has your child. I don't have a problem with kids having video games. I just don't want video games having my kids. And when when they start acting like zombies and they can't even carry on a conversation, and they can't even interact with nobody, and they have no ambition to do anything but to immerse themselves in a cyber world and and vicariously try to live through a false universe. At that time, Satan is all up in that. Put it away. Well, they may have their feelings hurt. Good. What is wrong with us parents today? Hurt they feelings. Get their feelings good and hurt. That's how you learn. That's how you grow. Show them for one month. Take it away for one month. No, you're gonna do other things. I want you to get outside. I want you to do something else. Honestly, you'll find that at the end of the month, they probably won't even go back to it. They'll be getting involved in other things and occupying their time and space. I'm not trying to harp on it. I just felt like God wanted me to go there for somebody. We did this in our house. Oh yeah, we took the machine out. No, 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 no. There will not be anything in this house that's going to take the place of God. No, we don't worship anything. No, 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 no. It's not moving me. I'm not moved. Okay? You will get over it. And so later on, when we introduced the video games back into the the deal, it was in balance and in order, and they're enjoyed now in moments. And after that, it's and nobody has an issue. I'm not against you having it. I just don't want it to have you because then it's bondage. And I'm not just talking about video games. It could be anything. What are we trying to satisfy ourselves with other than the word of God? Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? What are we trying to take the place? What are we trying to medicate our soul with that we think is sweeter than the word of God? There are a lot of things that can be very satisfying for us, but how many believe the word of God is the most satisfying thing but like honey, it's like honey. You'd never take a jar of honey and eat the whole jar, would you? Just like in one sitting, just eat the whole jar. You would never do that, right? Why? Because you would get absolutely sick to your stomach. So you would, what you would do if you want to enjoy it, and you put a little of it in something, or if you just want to enjoy it by itself, you may take a little tiny little spoon and dip it in and, and, and taste it, and it's, it's enough. It's, sat, it, it's satisfying to you. I believe that's what it's like to digest and internalize the word of God in our lives. We got to start off by taking bite-sized chunks of the word of God and then internalizing that and allowing it to be absorbed into our heart and into our soul. What passages of scripture have you recently been dipping into and sensing that that sweetness of the word of God in your life? 
That's the application here for us. Are you following me? I'm sure many of you have discovered some sweet passages of scripture. Like I'll give you one of my favorites. First Peter chapter five, verses eight through 11 is a beautiful passage of scripture where, where the apostle Peter, he said, be alert and of sober mind because your enemy, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, resist him, stand firm in the faith and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. That's sweet right there. That's, whew, right? It's a great passage. That's a spoonful right there that you can just write down on a three by five card and take it with you and really begin to digest that and allow it to encourage you and satisfy your soul. Let me give you another one if I can. Well, I'll do it anyway. Isaiah chapter 40. This is a great passage of scripture. Do you not know, have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He will not grow tired or weary and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increase the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and they won't faint. Come on, somebody. That's sweet. That's honey. It's a beautiful pass. How many of you know we need that one right there right now? I'm telling you, there's so many passages of scripture that are sweet like honey to our soul. And we need to find them and digest them and internalize them because they satisfy us at a deep level. But not only is the word of God sweet, we also found that the word of God is bitter because it reveals the judgment of God. Now, does the judgment of God have anything to do with the believer? No, it does not. The judgment of God has nothing to do with believers. Well, how do you say that, pastor? Because that's what the Bible says. God poured out all of his wrath and his judgment on his son on the cross for your sin and for my sin. And anybody who calls on the name of the Lord, they shall be what? From what? Judgment. Aren't you glad that when God looks at you in Christ, he doesn't see your sin anymore? He sees that Jesus, what he sees through blood-colored lenses of what his son did, and he doesn't see you as a stranger and a foreigner. He doesn't see you as, a, as, as someone who is an orphan. No, when he looks at you through his blood-colored lenses, he sees son, he sees daughter, he sees family because of what his son did. He's not mad at you. He's madly in love with you. Judgment in scripture is not for the believer. Why? Because Romans chapter eight and verse one said, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, does that mean that we can do whatever we want to and it's okay? No. Built into every sin is its own consequence. Doesn't say that we're consequence free in this earth. It just means that in the judgment to come, we are in Christ. Glory to God. Come on, somebody. Aren't you glad? But the Bible does say that he disciplines those he loves. He chastens, he disciplines. So we're not free of his discipline. We're not free of consequence. We're just free of judgment. How many of you understand that there's a difference between judgment and consequence? One is very much more grave than the other. 
So who is the judgment of God fall on? It falls on unbelievers. Do you know anybody in your life personally who would be subject to the judgment of God if it came today? Do you know anybody in your life? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a son or a daughter or a close friend. Someone in your life who you know has not yet repented and come to faith in Christ. The word of God is bitter in that sense. And listen, it should cause us and drive us to desire to share Jesus with that person. Because what's coming down on them is far more, far too high a price that they could pay. So God's word is sweet. It's also bitter. We also learn this, that God's word is to be eaten. It must be internalized through regular study. In fact, I'd change that word study and I'd say intake might be a better word. Everybody say intake. Come on, everybody say intake. We should have a regular intake of the word of God in our life. Study is just one way to intake the word of God. There are several other ways to intake God's word. Let me show you what they are. Is this okay, everyone? First of all, there is to hear the word. That's one way to intake the word of God. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? This is why it's important for you to prioritize the house of God. It's because when the word of God is preached, you need to have ears to hear what the spirit of the Lord would say to you because it builds your faith. Those of you watching online, it's important for you to make the house of God your priority, to make church a priority in your life because it's a way you intake the word of God. The Bible's very clear about this. When I hear the word of God, it nourishes me. It nourishes my faith. Can you say amen? But there's another way, and that is you read the word. Hear the word, but then read the word. It means take time each day or during the week to read through the word of God. This is why your own private devotion time is so important. It's why you need to have time. Listen, if all you rely on is what you're getting on Sunday morning, could you imagine eating one meal a week every seven days? You would look anemic. You would look frail. You would be sick. You would have no strength. You would have no energy. You wouldn't be able to do anything but lay up because you would be completely malnourished. But yet people do that to their spirit man all the time. They go to church, that's all they get. Is that one meal a week? No, you should be feeding yourself. Come on, at some point, how many of you know with your kids, there comes a certain point that you stop feeding them and you tell them to feed yourself? I'm hungry. What you telling me for? Do I look like your butler? You know where the pantry is. You know where the refrigerator is. Go feed yourself, Right? And I'm afraid today we got people mature physically, they're adults physically, but spiritually they're three years old. Feed me, feed me, feed me. Meanwhile, we got a Bible in five different locations in our house. We got a Bible app on our phone. We got Christian television. We got all this stuff and we're still locked in a three-year-old spirit man saying, feed me. And maybe the Holy Spirit would say to us today in a strong parental way, Feed yourself. It's right there. Take it, open it, read it. Let me move on. Third way. 
Study the word. This is different than reading it. Study's different. It means you really get into it. It means you look at it. You, you break it apart. You identify a theme and, you, and the meaning and the application of a passage. Let me give you a tip. If you want to know, you wanna know how to, if you've never really studied scripture, like it's different than just reading it. Studying is different. Here's how I would do it. Because there's so many ways and so many things, so many times. What topic do I even, I'll tell you what I'd do. If, I, if it were me, and I do this to this day. What, what is the one issue in your life that you're, that you're weak in? What is the one thing in your life that you have a struggle with, personally? Let's just take fear. Some of you watching online, some of you in this room right now, you are racked with fear. You're fearful about everything. You come in God's house and you raise your hands and you, you worship and sing about a God who can do anything. Show me a mountain he can't move. Show me oceans he can't part. Show me all that. He's my champion. Oh, hallelujah. The blessing he goes before me and around me and all this other stuff we sing. But yet you don't even, you don't even wanna walk out your house. You, you, got, you got everything locked up, five guns beside you at night, can't even sleep peaceful racked with fear about every little thing in your life. Well, how is that actually applying? How is that working out? So I would take the topic of fear and I would go into scripture and say, I want to do some studying on it. You know why? Because the word of God changes your life. And all of a sudden you get the word working on that insecurity and you become, you become a overcomer. All of a sudden now you're walking in faith. You're not afraid anymore. You're not fearful of everything. Why? Because the word of God is in you. This is a tip I'm giving you on how you can actually start studying. Find whatever it is in your life that you're dealing with the most and go into the word of God and study. You've got a concordance in the back of your Bible. Look up the word. Go look at all the scriptures. Write them down for them and study them out. Ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate truth to you. I gotta move on. Another way is this. Memorize the word. We don't do this enough today. We don't memorize the word anymore like we used to. Are you actively memorizing the word of God? David said, I will hide your word in my heart, memorization, that I may not what? How do I quit from sinning, Pastor? I keep sinning in this area. <laughs> What's God's word say about it? I don't know. Well, good, stay in bondage. David said, I'll hide your word in my heart that I may not. Because in that moment of temptation, the word of God, comes, the Holy Spirit brings that back to my remembrance. I say no. Because he can fight me all day long. Satan can fight you, argue with you all day long, and you will lose. But he cannot argue the word of God. No, Satan, it is written. And you just roll on. Another way to, to, to intake the word of God is to meditate on it. Meditate. Let me give an example of what this means. If you really want to be closer to Jesus, listen. I mean, like you know a lot about him from the gospels, but if you really wanna connect with Jesus in a more intimate level, where, where in scripture do you start understanding your relationship with Jesus the best? How many of you would like to know where that is? Five of you, that's, praise God. How many of you like to know where that is in scripture? All right, let me, let me tell you, what, let me tell you. okay, so here's what, you, I, I'll tell you this. Go start reading Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You should be like writing that down, okay? Galatians, Ephesians, why? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I wanna encourage you to begin to read those books because those books describe your relationship with Jesus. They describe 
the fact that I've been set free in Christ. They describe the fact that I've been delivered from the power of sin in my life through Jesus Christ. They describe the fact that I am secured in Jesus Christ in this life and in the life to come. It'll draw you close to Jesus. You'll learn things Jesus has done for you personally you may not have ever known before. And meditating on that one chapter at a time, one verse at a time to just pause and give meditation to the Lord. Are you doing that? It's worth it. I, oh, there's a word for it. It's called ruminating. You know what ruminating is? It means when you think about something over and over, you're just pondering it. Sometimes you read scripture, you just ponder. You just think about it all day long. If you want to get real down to earth, it's what, they, it's what cows do. Ruminating is another word. It came from the actual word when cows chew their cud. That's disgusting, ain't it? But it's what they do. They eat and then they, they barf up what they ate and they chew on it. Some of y'all don't like that when you eat your food, by the way. That's what it means to ruminate. It means you digest it, but then you bring it back to your memory and you just chew on it and chew on it and you ruminate. You meditate on it. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's revealing more and more and more and more to you. And you walk in that stuff. That's what it means to intake, internalize the word of God. Take it deep into your soul. And finally, this is the ultimate, and that is to apply the word. Because God's word has no power if it's not applied. Do you know how many people know a whole lot of head knowledge about God but have never applied anything from his word to their life? You know what that does? That, puff, that puffs you up with pride. The Bible talks about that. Your head swells with knowledge, but there's no relationship in your heart. That's where legalism comes from. That's where cold environments come from. That's where judgmentalism comes from. That's where spiritual elitism comes from. That's where Pharisees come from. All head knowledge, no heart relationship. How do you have heart relationship? You don't just become a hearer of the word, you become a doer of the word. You apply that which you've taken in. So if I walked up to you and said, what are you working out in your life right now? What would you say? Are you working on anything in your life right now? Are you, are you, are you applying? That would be the application of the word of God in your life. Of those six ways that I just gave you to get God's word into your life, how are you doing? Do a self-checkup right now. How are you doing in these six ways of intaking the word of God? Where do you think you're at? And where do you want to go? What do you want out of it? Which ones are you missing in your life right now? The bottom line is the word of God has to be our sole authority, not culture, not politics, not anything man says, I don't care what's politically correct, I will be politically incorrect if the word of God is different than what politically they say it should be. I don't care what man says. I'm getting sick to death, and I hope all of you are watching online. I hope you reshare it and talk about it all day. I welcome the arrows. I'm so tired of watching mainline Christian churches in this country right now twist the word of God into meaning stuff and saying things that it was never meant to say just because the culture is pressuring them to do it. 
in hopes that people will receive the gospel, we're creating a gospel that they will receive. You don't mess with the word of God. It's just as powerful now as it was written then. And if God says it's wrong, it's wrong. And if he says it's right, it's right. It must be our sole authority. And it's John's authority here in Revelation 10. Y'all thought I forgot about Revelation, right? It's his authority too. John took the word. He ate it. And it was sweet and it was bitter. And so now we turn the corner to chapter 11. Y'all still with me? Turn the corner on chapter 11. I just want to look at a little bit of, uh, of chapter 11 for, for a moment. Because not only is it the preeminence of God's word that's important and that's eternal, but also I want to look at the second component, and that is the perseverance of God's witnesses. Because as John continues his prophecy, he turns the subject now in chapter 11 to the witnesses that are going to be living during the time of the tribulation. In Revelation, he, in chapter 11 in verse 1, he opens up by saying, I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And I was told to go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. Now what's going on here? Don't miss this because we know that there is an actual temple. Follow this now. There is an actual temple, but we also know that there isn't a temple of God in Jerusalem right now. Y'all do know that, right? You do know that the wailing wall in Jerusalem is the lower foundation of what used to be the temple of Jerusalem. There's no temple in Jerusalem right now. There is nothing that is Jewish on top of the temple mount to this day. So what we're seeing in this passage of scripture is describing the fact that there's going to be another temple if you hold to a literal view of what this is saying. So what is this measuring rod? Write this down in your notes. This measuring rod signifies protection for believers. So God is showing John here, I want to protect. He's drawing a boundary when he's measuring. I want you to measure this, God says. He's drawing a boundary to protect. He wants to protect believers during this time. So, he's, so John's going to measure out the temple and, 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 and include in that, in that parameter all those who are worshiping in the temple. That means God's going to be protecting them. Doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to protect them from all harm, but he's going to protect them eternally. They will endure persecution, but they will ultimately be protected. So the temple of God, the altar, and those that are worshiping in it, what are we dealing with here? There's really two ways to look at it. So follow me. I'm going to get a little theological with you. There is a symbolic representation of this, and there is a literal representation or interpretation of this. The literal obviously means that there is some kind of a physical temple that is to be reconstructed in Jerusalem during this period. The symbolic interpretation is that it represents believers in the sense that the believers during the tribulation are the temple and the altar are those people who are worshiping. It's a symbolic representation, some believe, of the church itself. But the literal interpretation means that there is an actual physical temple being rebuilt. This is important. This is so important to understand about prophecy. If you ask me, my, theologically, my theological leanings are very strong to a literal interpretation of this. Because right now, listen, right now in Jerusalem, behind the Western Wall is the Gold Dome. We, we know as the Dome of the Rock. It is controlled by the Arab countries now. Since the, uh, 
since the fall of Jerusalem back during all the, the, the conquest and everything in that era when they invaded. But it was built, now the dome of the rock that we see on television, the gold, the gold dome there on the Temple Mount, it is now dedicated to the Muslim leader Muhammad. On the very site that the Temple of Solomon, the tabernacle of God sat, now sits the gold dome dedicated to Muhammad. This is this right here. So it's this very site, the Temple Mount, where there used to be a temple of God, now does not belong to the Jewish people anymore. It has been taken from them. So this passage of scripture seems to be alluding to the fact prophetically that in the future, listen, the temple is going to be built right on that particular location. And listen, the Jewish people are very serious about this today. Very serious. They know Old Testament prophecy. And they have evaluated the fact already that there will come a time in the future prophetically and ability in the future to rebuild their temple. In fact, right now, in a museum in Jerusalem today is a representation, listen to me, of the third temple. It has already been designed. It's already been mocked up into a huge model in a museum in Jerusalem, what they think it may look like. And in their estimation, it's three times larger than the original temple that Solomon had built. They believe that that's the temple that's gonna be constructed at some point in the future. Ladies and gentlemen, if you don't think that the Bible is more up to date than tomorrow's newspaper, you are sadly mistaken. In fact, let me give you another shocker. Did you know that over the last 20 years, privately, Israel as a whole, they have been calling back to Jerusalem the Levitical line from all the corners of the earth. They're finding out through their databases who is of the tribe of Levi, because those are the priests. They're calling them back to Jerusalem now. Do you know why? Because the wealth of Israel, they are already gathering the materials. To this day, they're gathering the marble, they're storing all of this. That's how strongly they believe. Ladies and gentlemen, we're talking about Revelation 10 right now. And we're in 2020. Does that tell you any, does that, tell, does that give you any clue as to how close we are to the rapture of the church? If they're already gathering the materials. And this is not supposed to happen until the tribulation. It's sobering, ain't it? It's so much fun. They believe it's gonna happen. But we know from scripture that it's not just at some point in the future like they believe, but rather we know that it's gonna be constructed during the time of the great tribulation. So watch here. In Revelation chapter 11, it's those Jews that come back to this very spot that are considered to be true believers during this time period. The Bible actually calls them the remnant. They are the remnant. Now, 
You can believe either one of those interpretations you want. You can line up on either side of them, symbolic or literal. No matter which way you look at it, Scripture is talking about the true believer. So if you see it as symbolic of the church, it's still the believers. If you see it as the remnant of Israel that rebuild the temple and begin and start beginning to worship the one true God, then it's the believers that God wants to measure and wants to protect. Either way, you still end up with true believers. So what's happening outside of the temple? In verse two of chapter 11, it says, but exclude the outer, outer court. So he, said, he told John, don't measure that. Exclude the outer court, don't measure it, because it's been given to who, everybody? Come on, who's it been given to? The Gentiles, and they will trample on the holy city for how long? 42 months. So notice, there is an outside of the temple here. There's an inside the temple that represents true believers, but the outside of the temple here, the outer court of Jerusalem, it represents unbelievers during the great tribulation. It says that they're gonna trample Jerusalem for 42 months. So what John is describing are these true worshipers that are protected during the tribulation. And in verse three through four, he talks about two witnesses. Now this is where it gets really interesting. Somebody say two witnesses. I'm gonna read a lengthy portion of scripture, but just hang with me. Because verse three through six says this, and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will what? They will what? Prophesy for 1260 days, roughly three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord, the Lord of the earth. And if anyone tries to hurt them, Fire comes from their mouths and kills their enemies. That's, that's some bad dudes right there. And if anyone tries to hurt them in whatever way, that same way, that person will die. These two witnesses will have the power to stop the sky from raining during the time they are prophesying. So if they're, they're preaching the word of God and it starts to rain, they can stop it right there and continue preaching the word of God. Lord, give me that gift. And they have power to make the waters become blood. We've read about something similar to that in Exodus, did we not? And they have the power to send every kind of trouble to the earth as many times as they want. These two witnesses represent the preaching of the gospel before the final wrath of God. Now, who are these particular witnesses? Who are they? I'm gonna, well, let me get to that in a minute. Let me, don't get ahead of myself. The gospel, the point is, the gospel is going out for one last time from these two witnesses before the final wrath and the final judgment of God falls upon the earth. Now, let me keep going. I'm gonna land some here. Okay, in verse seven, it says, now when they finished their testimony, the beast, everybody say the beast, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them. Now, who is the beast in all of this? Write this down. The beast is the Antichrist who has come from the abyss. And we're, listen, I know many of you have got all kinds of questions about the Antichrist. We're gonna look at the Antichrist in a lot of detail in, in some chapters coming up very, very soon. But suffice it to say this, the Antichrist is the one sent by Satan to deceive the nations to follow him as opposed to follow Jesus, right? The Bible says the Antichrist will wage war against these two witnesses that are preaching, and he's finally gonna overcome them, 
God's gonna allow him to overcome them and to kill them, destroy them. But if we kept on reading in that chapter, the Bible actually says their bodies will be laid in the street for three days. So they're gonna be killed and nobody's gonna touch them. They're gonna lay there for three days and the whole world will see it, the Bible says. The whole world will see their two bodies. Now imagine John in his day seeing that the whole world will see something happening in Jerusalem. That probably confused him more than anything in the world. How in the world? Because he's back then, there's no technology. How many believe we have technology today for that to happen? The whole world will see it on CNN, Fox, MSNBC. They're gonna see it. These two witnesses are laid there in the street for three days. And then it says after the three days, they're gonna be resurrected from the dead and immediately taken up to heaven. Now you may wonder who in the world are these witnesses? Who are these two guys? Who could they potentially be? There's a few theories. I'm not gonna deep dive totally into this because <laughs> it's, 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 uh, speculate, it's prophetic speculation. We talked about that last week, right? But there's a lot of scholarly beliefs on both sides of this. Some people believe that these two witnesses are Enoch and Moses because both of them, I'm, I'm sorry, um, Enoch and Elijah because both of them were taken up to heaven, remember, without experiencing death. But the Bible commands it is appointed to every man once to die. So we always often wonder when we read that weird story of Enoch, why did God take him? Remember the Bible says that Enoch walked with the Lord and he was not for the Lord took him. He just, can you imagine just walking one day and all of a sudden you just walk right into the presence of God? What just happened? Right? What's even more dramatic is Elijah's story of chariot of fire coming down. This is a little more dramatic. Like Elisha's standing there watching the whole thing. Like a chariot of fire comes down. And like Elijah climbs in it like it just happens all the time. All right, man, well, look, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna have to peace out. But hey, you got this? You good? Everything's good? Hey, here's my coat. Love you. Right? Two dramatic examples of two men being taken out of the earth without tasting death. So right now in the portals of glory are three men actually, well, let me not go there. Two of them are in bodies, not spirit men. But the Bible, God's word says, is commanded and appointed to every man who wants to die. Many scholars believe that God pulled them out for this moment. That he's gonna send Enoch, who was a prophet, by the way, in scripture, and Elijah back to the earth to prophesy for three and a half years and have all this power, and then they're gonna have to die because it's appointed to every man wants to die. Some people believe, another view of this, is that these two witnesses are uh, Moses and Elijah, which, mm, I don't know, it makes some sense, and the reason why a lot of people believe this is because those are the two that appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember that? When Peter, and he called Peter, James, and John, come with me, and he took him up the hill, and all of a sudden he was transfigured before them, and there was Moses, and there was Elijah with him, right? So how can they testify to something? How can they give witness to something here in Revelation 11? How can they give witness and testimony to Jesus Christ and have never encountered him? So many people believe that it was on that Mount of Transfiguration that they gave witness and testimony to the Son of God, and they were kept and preserved for that. Because many people believe that it was them and so you have two different scholarly beliefs. Hey, either way you want to cut it, they some bad dudes, okay? And they're going to come back and prophesy, and they're going to they're going to they're going to be killed, and then they're going to raise from the dead. Are y'all? Did I just blow everybody's? I mean, are y'all good? 
All right, after these two witnesses are resurrected and taken to heaven, Scripture says that once they resurrect from there, there's going to be a tremendous earthquake, a massive earthquake in Jerusalem. All these events are described in Revelation 11. You can read the rest of them on your own. And following their ascension and following that earthquake, the Bible says that many in Jerusalem are going to come to Jesus as a result of it. And then in verses 15 through 19, we see then, now we're moving out of this intermission, and then we're going to see the seventh trumpet, which is the beginning of the last judgment. And if you remember, I told you the last of the sevens open up the others, right? And so the seventh trumpet is the final trumpet, which opens up the seven bowl judgments of the wrath of God. And this will be the last judgments and will probably appear in rapid fire order in the earth. Basically, we're moving very quickly to the last wrath and judgment of God before Christ returns, and so these things accelerate, and they they just rapid fire. God's just unleashing his wrath. But prior to that, there is the preaching of the gospel, the two witnesses. There's gonna be a massive revival happening during the tribulation for those who were left behind but that are coming to faith in Christ. It's going to be global revival, which is what brings the persecution to the believers of the Antichrist. So what's the application here? The preaching of the word of God, the preaching of the gospel, what's the application? Let's land this plane today on a personal level. Point number one is this. God desires all to be saved. And God is willing, listen, if we get anything out of this today, God is willing to wait until the last person repents and comes to him. Now, let's be honest. You and I don't always think that way around unbelievers. <laughs> you know, sometimes we find ourselves, and it's easy to think, well, they deserve their judgment. Sometimes it's easy to look at what unbelievers do and how they act and the things that they say and the things that they commit, all that, and we look at them and say, well, man, it's just, well, they deserve their judgment, but aren't you glad today that God doesn't think like we do? Come on, y'all. Aren't you glad that God doesn't want that to happen to anybody, right? In fact, he says this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises as some understand slowness. Instead, come on, he is what? He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. That's the loving grace of God there. How many agree that sometimes we need an attitude change toward unbelievers? We really do. The fact that God desires for all to be saved and is waiting and waiting for the very last one to come to faith in his son, Jesus. Come on, how many believe our hearts should break for what breaks his heart? It's that people come to know Christ. Number two application today is this. God holds back judgment for the last one to repent. He holds back the judgment, giving time for the last one to repent. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 18, the Bible, God says this. God says through the prophet Ezekiel, for I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. In fact, it actually says in chapter 11 of Revelation, if you go to verse 13, that 7,000 people were killed in that earthquake after the ascension of those two witnesses. But the rest of the people in Jerusalem, the Bible says, ends up repenting and giving glory to God because of it. 
This is probably one of those last moments in history when people will have the opportunity to repent and come to faith in Christ. One of the last moments in history before the bold judgments are poured out on the earth and before the return of Jesus Christ. So God waits until the very last minute for the last one to come to him before the final judgment. And finally, I believe this passage of scripture today is teaching us this, is teaching us to keep on witnessing even in the midst of strong opposition. That we're to keep on witnessing. I don't know where God has placed you in your life, but maybe like these witnesses that we read about, maybe you find yourself in a position of opposition. Maybe you're getting some opposition where you, you work. Maybe you're in a difficult place. Maybe it's a neighborhood. Maybe it's in a work situation. Maybe it's on the soccer field. I don't care where it is. I don't know where God has placed you right now, but I do believe that God is calling us like these witnesses and like the true church and like the true believers in Revelation 11, that we are to continue on witnessing. In Acts 4, the apostle Peter is told not to speak of this Jesus Christ to anyone anymore. The religious leaders of his day, the Sanhedrin, commanded him to be quiet under penalty of death. But he said, I'm sorry, i got to continue on. That even in the midst of persecution, God, I am here for your purpose. I am here for a reason. And these people God wants me to share Jesus with, and I can't stop, won't stop. I'm not going to do it. Let me ask you, who is God put in your life to share with? Do you realize that the people around you who don't know Jesus, do you see what they're, what they're headed for? Does it break your heart? Does it hurt to know that we have the cure? We have the answer. It should break our heart that we conceal it to ourselves. Well, as long as I'm in, that's all that matters. Wow, I'm so, gl I'm so glad that God didn't do that to me. So glad Jesus didn't do that to me. We should have our heart broken. Who is that individual? Where are those people in your life? God wants us to learn something from this passage, and that is we need to keep on witnessing even in times of opposition. I don't know, I don't know where any where I don't know what anybody else is doing. But we're gonna continue to go on. And let me just say this, and I'll probably catch some heat for it, but that's okay. I'm kind of used to that. I'll say this. This whole coronavirus pandemic, there's some seriousness to it and we're taking every precaution and all those things. But unless you're blind, you are watching a very subtle persecution of the church going on right now. I talk to pastors every week. I talk to pastors across the country every single week. Churches our size, churches bigger than us. I, I, I talk to them because we're in this together. Share ideas, share prayer requests, share needs, share joys. And I've got to be honest with you. I've been, very, I've been in a very challenging posture to some of my colleagues recently. Some of them are just refusing to open the doors. Now, granted, some of them are in states where 
they have literally said you cannot have church. It's okay for the abortion clinic to be open, but the church can't open. Walmart can be open, but the church can't open. Lowe's can be open, but the church can't be open. The bars can, the casinos can be open, but the church can't be open. And I've been talking to colleagues, I've been a little, in a little challenging posture saying, what are you doing? Well, they're threatening to do that. They told them, man, I think I told one friend of mine, and he's, he's not, he's not, he's a strong guy. Pastor's a great church. And I told him this week, because we're that kind of close, we're that kind of relationship. Sometimes, I mean, you know, sometimes you gotta have a friend just put you up against the wall and go, you know? This week I had to do that to a couple of friends of mine. They still love me. I said, what are you doing? Right now I think that the early church is looking down on us laughing their heads off. Like what? They told us not to gather either. They told us not to worship either under penalty of death, but we gathered anyway because it's better to obey God rather than to obey man. Well, they're threatening to, they're threatening. Now, granted, I'm, listen, we're very blessed to be in the state that we're in to, to be able to do what we're doing. Some of my colleagues are not in states like that. So you have to understand before we get too critical, the pressure's very real. And they're broken, man. I'm telling you, this, the pressure's real. One of my friends right now has defied the order in California and they are meeting anyway. And let me tell you, they're leaving church. They're packed out, by the way because nobody will open. The church is essential. And they're the only ones in their whole city that's open. They've been threatened by the government, threatened by the city, threatened by the police department. They've been threatened by everything. They've had people standing out in their parking lot as cars are leaving, throwing eggs. They're egging their cars on the way out of church. They're giving death threats to this man's wife, to his children, because they're opening the doors. So the, 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 the persecution is real. So before we get too critical of what's going on, let's put ourselves in their shoes. But I still have taken a posture of challenge and said, I don't care what they said. We have a constitutional right to religious liberty and to freedom of worship. And I'm telling you right now, it, pastors, if we don't wake up in this country, if we don't grow a doggone spine for Jesus and stand up to this, they're gonna take everything we got. Does that mean that we're unsafe and we're incompassionate and we don't care? No, we're doing every precaution that we can. This is a virus. It ain't going anywhere. I don't know what all that, I talked to a medical expert this week who was critical of us not making everybody wear a mask in the building and he was just over the top and he was just being real kind and generous and we had a conversation or whatever and I said, hey man, I respect you because you're a little more, you know, he's a researcher, he's, a, he's, a, you know, he's all that. I said, but answer me this question, when does it end? You're the medical expert, tell me what medical benchmarks are we trying to reach for this to end? What medical benchmark has to be met for this to end? He had no answer. I said, that's right. You don't have an answer, neither does anybody else. So we're just supposed to continue like this forever? We're trying to flatten the curve. Look, you flatten the curve. It ain't going anywhere. 
Am I compassionate? Yes. Are there people who need to take it serious? Yes, because of pre-existing. All that stuff is, is true. I'm not being uncompassionate. I'm, ta- I'm not talking here about personal preference. So hear me clearly. This is not a political statement. This is not a personal preference statement. This is about the church of Jesus Christ. That is all this is about. And we better wake up So I've been in a challenging kind of a posture. Y'all pray for me because I'm telling you the emails, I'm telling you it's gonna happen this week, I promise you. But I'm getting about tired. This has to stop. They told the early church not to, don't you say that name, Jesus. Don't you gather, don't you, don't you do it. Don't you do it. And they'd do it, they were getting slaughtered. And here we are. In a time when the gospel of Jesus, when the time, in a time where the presence of God is needed in people's lives so much, and we're cowering down to what godless men are commanding us to do. My gosh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get in trouble. For, I'm telling you right now, y'all just pray for me. So what lasts forever? God's word, the souls of people. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Well, Pastor Jason, aren't you scared you get coronavirus? I'm worried about it. Yeah, I'm worried about it. I've got family with pre-existing conditions. I'm worried about it. But that doesn't change what God's called me to do. And so what happens, I had somebody ask me, what are you gonna do if you get coronavirus? Well, I'm gonna quarantine 14 days, I'm gonna recover and come back and preach the word of God. What do you mean, what am I gonna do? Aren't you afraid to die? No. Paul said, if I live, I'm gonna live for Jesus. If I die, I'm gonna be with Jesus. Either way I win, I don't care. What? What about, what about if someone on the staff gets coronavirus? Well, we'll send them home. We'll Lysol the office and send them home. What if you have an outbreak at church? Well, number one, nobody can prove they got coronavirus at church. Ah, oh, but see, that's the deception right there because that's what's said. Somebody gets coronavirus who attends church, all of a sudden, oh, I must have got it at church. I knew it was too dangerous. How, oh, it couldn't have been the job you work at. Couldn't have been the gas pump you touched all week. Couldn't have been at Walmart. Had to be the church. Had to be the church. I'm telling you right now, I can't give an account for nobody else's church. But as for me in this house, we're gonna serve God. And they could get the National Guard up here to come haul me out of this building. Throw me in jail. I'll have the biggest prison ministry in America. You can't stop it. You can't stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't snuff it out. You can't politicize it out. You can't criticize it out. You can't persecute it out. We are the church of Jesus Christ. Hey y'all, guess what I did today that I've never done before. Second service is supposed to start right now. Ushers have them wait in the lobby. I'm so done with clocks. I'm so done with, I'm done with all, I'm just done, I'm just done. I just feel we're, we're, 
I just feel like we're entering a move of God, man. I'm telling you, it's starting small. People are gradually coming back to church, and that's fine. I'm telling you, I had somebody ask me this week, aren't you afraid that people are gonna get so used to watching online, they're not gonna wanna come back to church anymore? I said, no, I ain't afraid of that. They're gonna come back. And do you know why? Yeah, they're gonna get in a bad habit, but I'm gonna tell you why I'm not afraid of that. I've had, I keep hearing this all the time. People are getting in a habit of not coming to church. It's not gonna wanna come back to church no more because it's uncomfortable to sit coffee in your, in your living room and watch church. No, I'm gonna tell you why that's not sustainable. Because the word of God says that he has put eternity into the hearts of man. And at some point, everybody begins to long for eternal things. They begin to crave coming back to the gathering of believers and being in an atmosphere of worship and being under the preaching of the word of God and ministering one to another. Oh, they're coming back. They're gonna come back. They're gonna come back. Hey, the bottom line is this is God's church. And he's been watching, he died for it, he rose from the dead for it. He's been watching over it for over 2,000 years. And if you think he's gonna let a group of godless men and a little virus destroy it, oh, you got another thing coming. He knows what he's doing. Okay, let me pray. Heads bowed, eyes closed, nobody moving around. I know you've been holding it for a little while longer, but bear with me. Father, thank you for your word today. Lord, if I was out of line in anything I said, I'm sorry. Just trying to be honest. Just feel so heavy. Just the burden on me right now, God, is so strong for your church and for pastors. God, people in this room and that are watching online, they don't know the struggle your shepherds are under right now. But God, I'm hearing it every week. The pain, the stress. God, I just want to take a moment and I'm just asking you to touch your shepherds. Oh God, minister to your shepherds in this country, around the world your pastors, your servants that are trying to lead in this crisis the best they can. God, nobody knows the trial. Nobody has any clue the pressure, the stress. God, I pray that churches in our country would raise up and honor and value their shepherds and pray for them and champion them and love them because the weight is heavy. But God, I believe you're doing a marvelous thing in our midst. Oh God, help us to give ourselves to your word because it's what lasts forever. God, help us to intake it. God, help us to have a heart for people who don't know Jesus because of what they're going to. It's why we exist, God. It's why we're here. Right now, with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you're watching online, just very quickly, just very simple. If you're in the building, I'm not gonna ask you to stand up, but if you just say, you know what? I don't know where I stand with Jesus. I believe in him. But I don't know if I have a heart relationship with him, but I wanna make that right 
I want a fresh start with God today because the rapture could happen at any moment and I don't want to be left behind. My friend, the Spirit of God is standing between you today and impending doom and giving you the opportunity now. Today is the day of salvation. And if that's you, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're watching online, if you're in the building, just raise your hand and say, pray for me. Come on, lift them up high, lift them bold. I want to see you be bold. God bless you, you, all kinds of hands going up. God bless you. Church, let's pray for these right now that have raised their hand. If you raise your hand, I want to pray with you. Just repeat this after me with all your heart. Just pray, dear God, thank you for sending Jesus to die for me. Forgive me of my sins. Wash me clean. I surrender all of my life completely to you. Fill me with your spirit. Teach me to live for you. Thank you for a fresh start. In Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. Amen. Listen. I ain't got time to get into it. You know how to give. If you want to give, give. If you don't want to give, don't give. (laughs) You want to fill the connection card out, fill it out. We want you to. If you don't want to fill it out, don't fill it out. Good Lord. Stand to your feet. I'm so sorry I kept you this long. I didn't mean to keep you long. Please don't not come back because of that. Is that okay? I just shared my heart today. Poor second service. Good Lord. (laughs) Second service is probably out in the lobby going, what's going on in there? What on earth? I got to get to lunch. Anyway, hey, I love you, church. I love you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you for praying for me and my family too. Hey, God bless you. Go home. Do it, do whatever you want to do.